Hi, this is Ando from the Fight for a Happy Life podcast. You and I are listening to the wise words of Sifu T. W. Smith of Kung Fu Podcasts. At least once a month, explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts with me, your host, T.W. Smith. You are in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that invest care, effort, and focus to forging their craft. Today, we're going to be looking into an essay from Professor Ben Juckins over at Kung Fu Tea. And it's got magic, references to sexuality, and then also a story about Ip Man facing a prostitute. masculinity as a core value in the traditional southern Chinese martial arts. One of the few facts that everyone seems to know about Wing Chun is that the art was created by a female. Whether this is actually true or not has no bearing on the current discussion. Instead, what is important is that so many martial artists believe that this is the case. Now, when it comes to having a female origin story, there are not many other Chinese martial arts that have that distinction. White Crane and Fujian, which may or may not have a connection to Wing Chun, depending upon who you ask, is also said to have the creation story of a talented female boxer. There is also boat boxing, which is also from Fujian, which is reputed to have been developed by the wives of the fishermen to defend themselves against the onslaught of pirates that infested the waterways of southern China for most of the late imperial period. Nor can we discount the literary power of figures such as Mulan, who was a Chinese warrior woman who was supposed to have lived between the northern and southern dynasties. If you believe her story was real to begin with, many believe it was fictional. But these are examples that are basically the exceptions that prove the rule. Ben continues to write, The martial arts of southern China were a man's world, both symbolically and literally. The vast majority of martial artists in this period were male. Exceptions did exist, but they were rare. Further, the creation story of the region's martial arts are dominated by male figures, often with some connection to the Shaolin Temple. In fact, this claim to a monkish origin is one of the sociological markers that we use to identify the Hung Mun, arts of the Cantonese-speaking majority. Female heroes might appear in fictional stories, but they were a point of interest precisely because they were rare. The ways in which the female characteristics and traits, or anything else associated with the idea of yin, how those were viewed in the 19th century culture was different from how your average Western martial arts student might think of that same topic today. This leads to some interesting questions. First, when people heard the stories of Yim Wing Chung or Fang Chi Niang, how did they interpret them? The second question, what sorts of meanings did they attach to those stories? This brings us to the section titled, A Psychological Approach to Gender in the Chinese Martial Arts. And the truth is, is that there is no easy way to answer those questions. The story of Yim Wing Chung is still popular today because it has this fictive, transformative power 
in people's lives. The ultimate origin of this power is based on human psychology. In this story, we are presented with a classic rite of passage. Listeners are told how an immature, weak, virginal girl was turned into a powerful adult female, capable of returning to her home and getting married because of the intervention of a guide who led her through an adventure that was set in the hazy dreamscape of southwestern China. The psychological appeal of this story is universal. Individuals from all cultures have to navigate basically the same life pathway that we see laid out here. It is no wonder that it has been so successful with modern audiences. You probably already know but Yim Wing Chung is the Chinese legendary character, often cited in Wing Chung as the first master of the martial art, bearing her name. Wing Chung, through a person's name in the Chinese language, translates literally to spring chant, or may be substituted with the character for eternal spring. Good symbols are always multivocal. This is what British anthropologist Victor Turner points out, and he's an expert in this field. They have more than one interpretation. In different situations, they can adapt and take on new readings. As we change, we always find something new in the symbols. This is why a really classic story or myth never seems to get old, no matter how many times you might hear it. This next statement of Ben's is something I've had to read and reread in order to try to wrap my head around. So he writes... When we move into the realm of symbolic analysis, we also take a step away from the universality of basic psychology towards the particularism of culture. Because culture is a shared system of signs and symbols. These signs have meaning precisely because we all agree that they do. Yet meaning can be a slippery thing. That brings us to the next section. Yin as an aspect of balance. Yim Wing Chung and Feng Chin Yong as model heroines. So, what does the story of Yim Wing Chung look like in cultural terms? This is a tough question to answer as stories tend to be told at specific times and to specific audiences. If we know culture is a shared system of signs and symbols, what does the story of Yim Wing Chung look like in cultural terms? Well, during the period that we have an interest in during this episode, all of that, the stories of the time, and the audiences were starting to change. New groups were coming into the martial arts world for the first time, and they were bringing new ideas with them. And the older folks, the older groups, did not totally disappear either. They remained and became part of the mix. Ben argues that the Yim Wing Chung story that we currently possess probably dates to the 1930s. That's because it is dependent upon names and literary characters that did not actually appear in Chinese literature and publishing until quite late. However, the basic sort of female hero that Yim Wing Chung represents is actually much older. Consider, for instance, the story of Feng Chi Neung. 
according to Fujinese fighting manuals that were authored around 1800, then they were preserved and later rediscovered in Okinawa. They played an important role in the creation of karate. Feng was the creator of Yong Chung, which is basically Wing Chung in Cantonese, white crane boxing. Her father and martial arts teacher eventually died from wounds he sustained in battle over control of a local village. Swearing vengeance, Feng dedicated herself to practice and preparation. One day while still grieving, Feng was roused by the sounds of two cranes fighting. As she watched, she was transfixed by the strategic movements and entry strategies of the graceful birds. She noticed how they jumped, fainted, and used precisely aimed attacks. Eventually, she decides to go ahead and just scare the birds off, and she goes and gets a pole. But they can sense the proximity of her weapon, and they easily evade it and resettle at different angles, forcing her to come at them again. Eventually, on their own accord, the birds decide to leave. Fung decided that her encounter with the cranes was a revelation. She combined what she learned from the birds with the monk fist that her father taught her and derived the physical outlines of the art that is now White Crane. After three years of practice, she became a strong and confident fighter who triumphed in many challenges. But she also learned to appreciate the wisdom of her late father. One who cannot find inner peace or harmony will never master any fighting tradition. To overcome one's enemies, you must first master and cultivate the self. These are both references of the Wubeiji, or in Japanese, the Bubishi. If you'd like to hear more about that, there's a whole compilation titled Returning the Bubishi to His Chinese Roots, and you can find that over at KungFuPodcast.com. That is a brief story of Feng Chi Niang, but it is enough to suggest many interesting features. This legend has a pretty nuanced and philosophical view of the martial arts for a document dating from the early 1800s. It doesn't advance any complex Taoist doctrines or practices, but it is remarkably dedicated to the idea of self-cultivation being the ultimate basis of martial success. We practice Kung Fu to be a better person first and a better martial artist second. Ben continues, and it's important to note that that story that we just listened to is reminiscent of books and stories that would not be written till a hundred years later than most of the stories we would have read from those early 1800s. Obviously, Fung is an important character for those investigating the background of Yim Wing Chung and Ning Moi. In fact, many of the later accounts of Fung either tie her father explicitly to the Shaolin Temple or claim that she eventually became a nun or a female hermit. Ben states that he thinks there is a very good chance that Fung, who was based on a real person, provided the raw materials that would later be reorganized to construct Ning Moi. The origin story makes it very clear that evasiveness, deception, withdrawal and timing are all key ingredients in the Fung style of boxing. These are also all characteristics that are associated with the idea of yin 
our female energy. Now we're moving into the next section, titled Manipulating Yin as Disruptive Battle Magic. So, would all Chinese martial artists who heard this story in the 19th century have been receptive to his message? Most likely, the answer is no. As Avron Boretz makes clear in his study of martial culture and gender in the region today, Yang or masculine advancing values are usually seen as the key to success in the Cantonese martial arts. Barretts authored the excellent 2010 work that we have referenced here at Kung Fu Podcast many times, God's Ghosts and Gangsters, Ritual Violence, Martial Arts, and Masculinity on the Margins of Chinese Society. It's a paperback book. I really encourage you to pick it up. Barrett's ethnographic research presents a detailed examination of the role of gender in both southern Chinese folk religion and martial culture. He finds that in practical terms, yang is viewed as being pretty much the key to success in everything. It is the yang forces of fertility that feed the village, ensures the survival of families, and brings good fortune. Nor is there much thought of achieving a balance here. Generally speaking, the more yang, the better. Now, that just kind of makes you want to, you know, thump your chest a little bit. But the concept of balance may be an important philosophical Taoism, but it doesn't always come up in folk religion. According to Barretts, one of the main roles of the martial arts from the perspective of folk religion is to increase and cultivate an individual's yang powers. Any concentration of yin is likely to lead to sickness, misfortune, or death. Temple processions, exorcisms, and even martial arts sets are the means of projecting yang into the community to dissipate the lingering yin and to ensure prosperity in the future. In Barretz's research, he notes that there are specific martial arts forms or special exorcisms that might be performed at, a, for example, a street corner where accidents are common to eliminate the buildup of yin in that area, which is believed to be causing the problem. In short, the view of yin that Barrett's reports in modern folk religion is at direct odds with what we read in the stories of yin wing chong or feng chi niang. As we continue... While reading about the role of martial arts in the Boxer Uprising, to which a great source is Scott Phillips' Theater, Ritual, and Exorcism in Chinese Martial Arts, there are a very colorful set of passages that illustrate popular attitudes toward gender during the Ming and Qing dynasties. Before the passage is introduced, you should recall that the Boxer movement was made up of both martial artists and impoverished peasants, who sought to use an arsenal of traditional charms and spells, as well as whatever weapons they possessed, to eradicate Christianity in China, defend the Qing dynasty, and ultimately drive out the foreigners. Their attacks on Chinese Christians and European missionaries led to foreign military intervention by the Western powers and Japan in 1900. Passage says, the boxers regularly attributed the casualties they suffered in fighting with foreigners in Tianjin to the latter's placement of naked women in the midst or in the front of their forces, 
which broke the power of the boxer's magic. The story was also circulated and widely believed by the populace that a naked woman straddled each of the many cannons mounted in the foreign buildings in Jijulin, making it impossible for the gunfire-repelling magic of the boxers to work properly. That passage is attributed to Paul Cohen, titled History in Three Keys, The Boxer Uprising as Event, Experience and Myth. We continue. The boxers also employed special female troops, the Red Lanterns, to try and counteract this negative sexual magic being employed by the Westerners. Nor was this strategy all that unique. So the boxers go out and they employ their own special female troops called the Red Lanterns to try and counteract this negative sexual magic being employed by the Westerners. And this strategy was not all that unique. Earlier in the same book, Cohen shares with us similar strategies that were used at points during the Ming and Qing dynasty. Cohen shares with us that dirty water as a destroyer magic was unquestionably related in the boxers' minds to the most powerful magic inhibitor of all. Women, and more particularly uncleansiness in women, was a category that for the boxers included everything from menstrual or fetal blood to nakedness to pubic hair. Water was, of course, the symbol of yin, the primeval female principle in China. And there was a long-held belief that the symbolic representation of yin could be used to overcome the effects of such phenomenon such as fire, which includes gunfire. The forms of fire are symbolic of the male principle, yang. Several groups of rebels in the late Ming dynasty used women to suppress the firepower of government troops. During the insurgencies of 1774 in Shandong, Wang Lung's forces used an array of magical techniques, including strange incantations and women soldiers waving white fans. That was all during their assault of Lin Qing. The imperial defenders of the city were at first frustrated by the effectiveness of the rebels' fighting tactics. An old soldier, however, came up to the rescue with this advice. Let her prostitute go up to the wall and take off her clothing. We will use yin power to counter their spells. When this proposal was carried out and it proved to be effective, the government side adopted additional measures of the like, which included, as recounted by Wang Lung himself, women wearing red clothing but naked from the waist down, bleeding and urinating in order to destroy our power. <clears throat> we are now in a conceptual world removed far from the fighting strategies of gentle cranes and teenage girls. The earlier discussions of the place of yin in boxing, the timing, evasiveness, and how they service were clearly related to technical debates about entry, timing, and the value of short boxing. The examples from Barretts and Cohen place us squarely in the realm of adversarial magic. Rather than being a matter of balance, the forces of yin are seen as a shadowy harbinger of chaos and destruction. Rather than neutralize your opponent on the physical realm, the weaponization of female sexuality allows you to attack his virtue and his manhood on a much deeper and more fundamental level. 
It is safe to suspect that the stories of Ning Moi, Yim Wing Chung, and Fang Chi Niang originate in a slightly different culture, time period, and environment than the accounts above. At the end of the Qing Dynasty, there was an intellectual reform movement within Confucianism that argued that the original goodness of all people was shared by women. These scholars held that females were moral creatures and they should be treated as such. They were capable of being educated and might excel in poetry, literature, or the arts. This movement was far from anything that we would think of as modern feminism, and it maintained rigid gender hierarchies. Yet it did have an important effect on the lives of many women, including the revolutionary and martial artist Chu Jin, who grew up in a relatively liberal gentry household. These beliefs are evident in some of the stories of female boxers and heroes told at the end of the Qing Dynasty. Likewise, these same ideas are remarkably absent from earlier fictional works such as The Water Margin. In the more liberal 19th century martial mythology, women are typically viewed as fully realized moral creatures capable of hard work and self-cultivation. There is nothing about their inherent femaleness that disqualified them from being a proficient boxer any more than being a female disqualified one from being an accomplished calligrapher. In fact, a lot of the discussion in the Bubishi about the importance of self-discipline and internal cultivation sounds more like a reflection of popular 19th century Confucianism than Taoism. We often forget that Confucians also used meditation and breathing exercises and as were just as capable of medical or metaphysical thought as anyone else at the time. Ben uses a term in the next paragraph that I had to look up. In Word Hippo, it says that it's pretty much equivalent to metaphysical or supernatural or ideological. The paragraph reads, These attitudes on gender were obviously not shared by everyone in society and even some aspects of modern Chinese folk religion continue to draw a much sharper ontological distinction between genders than most of us in the Western industrialized world would be comfortable accepting. When we examine the story from this more reactionary perspective, the story of Ning Moi starts to look very different. Suddenly, a lone female figure manipulating the forces of Yin to skirt the authority of the government and bringing down local heroes becomes a questionable role model. In fact, Ben suspects that this is one of the reasons why a number of lineages in the Wing Chun world today have attempted to create alternate creation stories. He writes, Rather than focusing on women, which they find to both be embarrassing and unrealistic, these schools would prefer a narrative that relied exclusively on male rebels usually in association with an exotic secret society, fighting desperately to take down the government. In short, there is a certain amount of pressure within the Wing Chun clan to ditch our, and if you didn't know that, Ben is a Wing Chun man, to ditch our creation story and to start telling basically the same male-dominated story that every other Cantonese martial art uses. It would appear that the multiple possible readings of the role of yin in martial culture are still causing unresolved tensions 
even in today's era. Which brings us to the section, Understanding Gender, to Decode History. Yim Hong Challenges Ip Man. These competing popular ideas about gender might provide a useful dialect for thinking about other issues that occasionally arise in the history of the southern Chinese martial arts. For instance, one of the strangest stories that Ben has ever heard about Ip Man's youth is that of his challenge match with a well-known prostitute. What is even odder is that the story is relayed by his son Ip Chun, who is not prone to exaggeration at all, and therefore it is probably factually true. As a point of reference, you should recall that many northern martial artists were starting to come to Guangdong in the 1920s. Some of these individuals came with the Jingwu associations, and others were sent as part of the later Goshu movement. Even still, more came independently. This mixing of the old and new styles was occasionally a source of tension, as teachers would compete for students and for, as well, social influence. In the 1920s, there was a beautiful prostitute named Yim Hong, who spent time in Foshan. She was not a local resident and was originally from northern China. She is reputed to have been a woman of many talents, one of which was her mastery of hard Qigong. This is a practice whereby martial artists condition or train parts of their bodies to accept punishing blows. Whenever you see one of these air quote Shaolin monks having a cinder block smashed on his head or boards broken across his stomach during a demonstration, he is doing hard Qigong. Such skills were commonly displayed in marketplaces and they were a great way to draw a crowd when selling patent medicines or other services. Well, as the story goes, Ip Man's friends wanted to test his martial skills and probably humiliate him a little bit at, at the same time. So they arranged for a surprise meeting between the two, Yim Hong and Ip Man, at a private restaurant in Foshan. Well, she says to Ip Man, I can take three of your best blows to my stomach. Now, if Ip Man can't penetrate her iron stomach, he would have to pay her the equivalent of today's $750. Then she also told him, if you can penetrate my iron stomach, you can avail yourself to all of my services free of charge. Well, Ip Man takes the challenge and he proceeds to perform a one-inch punch on the woman using the typical Wing Chun soft fist. Much to the delight of his friends, he succeeded in doubling her over. As such, Ip Man was declared the winner of the challenge match, but he magnanimously released Yim Hung from her part of the contract and gave her a prescription to help her, quote, repair her chi, end quote. So what was really going on in this story? At first glance, it would appear to be rather a tawdry tale about a young kung fu master literally beating a traveling prostitute in a local brothel. You know, that's not the sort of thing that you're going to build a really good martial reputation on. Or do you really want it as part of your personal records, you know, as a memorial to your father or down to your sons? But nevertheless, there seems to be some additional meaning to the story, and we have to figure out what that is. 
Ben writes, it might be instructive to start with the possible motivations of Ip Man's friends. There does not seem to be much indication of Ip Chun's accounts that they were experienced martial artists or really understood what was going on at a detailed level. Instead, they probably viewed Qigong as some sort of magic. So from their perspective, the real question was, Will the polluted female yin of a traveling prostitute, who was from the north no less, destroy the virtuous yang of it man? On the surface, this wager appears to be similar to accounts of using prostitutes to suppress the enemy's fire or gunfire during the late Ming and Boxer Uprising. Given that it man was larger, stronger, and also an experienced martial artist, It was exactly this aspect of the challenge that would probably make the wager between the two a potentially interesting public contest in the first place. Yet Ip Man, Yim Hung, and Ip Chun, the storyteller, did understand what was actually going on here. On a much deeper level, things were not what they seemed. Yim Hung, who was by all accounts a beautiful woman, practiced a discipline that is almost exclusively the domain of working-class men seeking to increase their yang characteristics. It man, a male from a privileged background, used techniques predicated on relaxation, which is a yin trait, borrowed from a martial art developed by and for women. To an outside observer, it might look as though Ip Man's Yang had been enough to triumph over the challenge posed by the prostitute's corrosive pollution, the yin. But in reality, it was the yin that triumphed, just as popular wisdom might have expected, but not for the reasons that they would have understood. The entire story is a paradox that revolves around the disconnect between a thing's apparent and real nature. As Ben concludes the story, he says it is a hard story to tell. He does not typically share it with his academic students. Ben states the only reason that Ip Chun and others feel comfortable passing it on is that while Ip Man defeats the prostitute, he does it in a way that strikes a clear moral victory for her and people like her. One empowering way of reading this story is that he proves it is not necessary to suppress your essential characteristics, especially your gender, to be a good martial artist. That is what Yim Hung was actually doing, even though she looked feminine on the outside, when she was studying her brand of martial Qigong, and that is ultimately why her chi was damaged. In order to get to this interpretive level, it is necessary to know a little bit about how gender had been viewed in the Chinese martial arts. During the late 19th century, Chinese martial culture contained multiple competing schools of thought on these questions. We have reviewed two of them in this article. The first was more liberal and reformist. It saw women as capable of morality, learning, and self-cultivation. In this framework, female characteristics could be used to establish balance and inner harmony, even through some understanding of Taoism, which was rare, or popular Confucianism, which was very likely. Feminine metaphors then became available for descriptions of specific tactics and certain modes of storytelling. However, 
older ideas that understood yin in a harsher and less forgiving light did not simply just go away. In certain circles, they may have been even strengthened. These same ideas are still present in the popular religion of southern China today. Both casual listeners and historians should be aware that there is more than one way to read many of the Chinese martial arts legends, particularly when gender is involved. In the West, we tend to rely on the psychological readings of these myths, as those are the most acceptable to us. However, as the story of Ip Man and the prostitute Yim Hung demonstrates, understanding nuance often requires one to be able to see the same story from multiple points of view. Let me again say thank you to Professor Ben Junkins over at Kung Fu Tea, who has given me the opportunities to rework some of the essays so I could put them in audio format for you. And remember to learn to learn from a story from many different perspectives, not just the one that you're most comfortable with. You know, I really hope you have a great practice today. Put in your sweat equity, and I look forward to hearing from you. This is T.W. Smith, and I'll be talking with you again real soon.